as a church, we believe uh, in consecutive expository preaching. Now, those are long words which have a simple meaning. It, it just means we take a book of the Bible and we go through it from beginning to end. It means we don't pick or choose our favorite texts. Rather, it means that Sunday by Sunday, we have to deal with the next thing that the passage raises. Now, I say that because you'd never choose to preach on Genesis chapter 25. It's a chapter that is full of strange names and strange places and strange happenings. If you have it open in front of you, that will be good. Page uh, 26, we deliberately excluded some of those uh, lists of names and lists of uh, places in the public reading of Scripture. But because we believe in consecutive expository preaching, we need to take an in-depth look at this chapter. This is the Word of God. And I'm really glad we have to do that. Because this chapter actually illustrates some remarkable, some vital principles that impact each one of us here tonight. Now, regulars with us will understand that the book of Genesis is a collection of eyewitness accounts that have been edited and put together by Moses, the hero who was to take uh, his people from slavery in Egypt across the Sinai Peninsula and into their promised land of Canaan. And under the leading of God, every word that Moses records is exactly what God wants us to hear. And as we follow the story through, we notice where Moses attributes the authorship of particular accounts. So, for example, if you have that open in front of you, in chapter 25, if you go to verse 12, it says, This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's son uh, who Sarah's slave Hagar the Egyptian bore to Abraham. Now, the way it's constructed in the uh, Bible that you have in front of you suggests that what follows is the account of the family line. Actually, no, it is probably better to read it as the postscript of what has gone before, the section that has been before. So, uh, verse 12 shouldn't be separated from uh, what has gone on in, in verse 11, because... That previous section was the accounts of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael. Um, so it, uh, we're, we're seeing some of the stitching. If you were with us last week, we talked about the stitching, how passages are put together. And, and then, for example, in verse 19, uh, where it says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac, uh, that account is not what follows it is what's preceded from verse 13. Are you seeing what I'm trying to say here? We, we're seeing the sections that, that Moses has taken and edited. And under God, every single one of these words is true and accurate and relevant to a greater or lesser extent. So you get the idea here that we're in a transition phase 
in our story. The focus is moving from Abraham, who we've been looking at for the last 13 chapters. It's going to be settling briefly upon his son Isaac before concentrating in greater depth upon Isaac's son Jacob. But this transition phase that we have in chapter 25 is highly significant. The overarching truth that holds this chapter together is that the sovereign God is graciously in control. And each one of the four main characters in this chapter, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, they respond differently to this truth. You see, they clearly know, they understand that Jehovah God, Yahweh God, is working out his purposes to rescue and bless the world through their family line. But the way that each one of them responds to that truth is significantly different. And that's what makes this strange chapter so highly relevant to people here living in 21st century Edinburgh. I think probably the vast majority of us here in this gathering believe exactly the same. Most of us here are are Christians. Most of us here follow Jesus. By the way, if you're not a Christian yet, it's great that you're here. We just love it that you're here, so don't feel embarrassed. But you're, you're in a gathering where probably most of the folks here, the vast majority of folks here, are not only followers in Jesus Christ, but they sort of believe these same things. We believe that there is one God who is graciously and sovereignly in control of all things. We know that he's the God of infinite power and infinite love and infinite wisdom. We believe that he determines the flight path of every sparrow and the orbit of every planet and the movement of every quark within the nucleus of every atom. We believe our God reigns completely, holy. That's what most of us here believe. But so what? So what? What difference does that knowledge make to our lives How will that impact what we do tomorrow morning? How will it affect the way that I relate to my spouse? How will it regulate my thought life? How will it shape my emotions? Because it's quite possible for us to be orthodox and correct in what we believe and yet so confused and conflicted in what we do. That's why we need to spend some time looking at and evaluating the responses of the four main characters in this chapter. So we're going to start with Abraham, and and I've called this Abraham Delights. Abraham Delights. We read this in verses 7 to 8 of Genesis 25. Abraham lived 175 years, then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. An old man and full of years and he was gathered to his people. And that expression, full of years, means so much more than he was just an old man. In fact, the Hebrew word used here has the sense that he was deeply satisfied. He'd taken another wife, maybe to replace Sarah or Hagar, and actually he'd fathered another six children. 
and his riches had increased sufficiently so that he could provide for each one of them, whilst at the same time ensuring that Isaac, his firstborn, well actually his secondborn, but his firstborn to Sarah, was clearly recognized and protected as his genuine successor. And at his burial, we, we've read that Isaac and Ishmael were united in their grief over the death of this great man. And it would be all too easy for us to assume that this was always going to be the outcome. You know, Abraham, well, yeah, he, he sort of went riding off into the wilderness and all was hunky-dory. Actually, remember how it all started. There was an anonymous, childless couple who were told to leave their home country and travel hundreds of miles and settle in an area that was notorious for warring tribes and immoral living. The outcome would have looked very bleak. Very few of their family members would have thought that they could survive and thrive. The only thing actually that took them there, the only thing that kept them going, was the sure and certain knowledge that Almighty God had told them to. Their confidence was rooted in the promises that God had made to them. And although they experienced, while they were there, famine and failure, although they knew the pain of infertility, although they went through the heartache of separation from loved ones, although they made serious mistakes in their lives, they kept trusting. They kept following. They kept obeying. Little wonder, therefore, that Abraham is held up to folks like us as a wonderful example of faith. I'm going to give you quite an extended uh, quote from Hebrews 11 in the New Testament as the writer to Hebrews re reflects upon people of faith. And it says this in verses 8 to 10 and then verses 13 to 16. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So, you see, the key to this deep satisfaction that Abraham experienced is to be found in trusting and obeying what God says. And although there'll come times of testing. These are only so that we may prove the faithfulness and mercy of God. So, so we have Abraham, someone who delighted himself in the sovereign, gracious God who'd revealed himself to him. But, but I want us to move on to Isaac. And we see something different with Isaac. I've called this Isaac defers. Isaac defers see, the Bible is strangely quiet about Isaac. 
although he is Abraham's promised son, though he is the one through whom the promises of God would continue, there aren't many verses that focus on his life. In fact, chapter 26 is the only chapter that's given over exclusively to his story. But look, because of that, we shouldn't imagine that Isaac was an ungodly man or an unworthy successor of Abraham. We maybe get some clues about Isaac from where he lived. We, we noted this in verse 11. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lehi Roy. And uh, in the previous chapter, it confirms that this is the place where Isaac had established his home. Uh, Genesis 24, verses 62 to 63. Now Isaac had come from Beer Lehi Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. So he's living in this place with this strange name, and it all begs the obvious question. Why did he live there? I think it could well be to do with the fact that this was the place, Beer Lehi Roy, where Jehovah God met with Hagar when she was running away from Sarah, and at that place, God gave her special promises about her future. Let me take you back to Genesis 16, verses 13 to 14. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lehi Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So it's quite likely that this place was especially known as a significant spot. It was a place where God had revealed himself, made himself known. And, and no doubt some form of altar would have been erected there. And Isaac deliberately bases himself there. No doubt mindful of what had taken place. And the very fact that scripture records him as meditating at that place emphasizes the spiritual nature of this man. You see, it seems he's very conscious of his family history. He's very aware of the promises made to his father. And remember, this was the guy who had this amazing experience on Mount Moriah in which he allows himself to be bound as a sacrifice where his father was about to kill him, and only then was he substituted at the last moment by a ram which had got caught in a thicket nearby. And, and no doubt that had profoundly shaped his thinking. It would have done for you if you'd been through something like that. And it would appear that he's also very conscious of the fact that God is in control. He, he knows nothing can thwart God's purposes, that God will achieve all that he determines. But there's information in chapter 25 that suggests that Isaac had not fully grasped the role that he plays within God's sovereign purposes. It seems to me that Isaac is unnecessarily passive in the way that he responds to God. Let me try and illustrate what, what I mean. See, verse 20 tells us that Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. We're also told that, like Isaac's mother Sarah, Rebekah was infertile. And it was only when Isaac 
prayed to the Lord about the situation that Rebecca fell pregnant with the twins. Now, this all sounds entirely reasonable. It's only when you get to the end of verse 26 that you realize there is more to this than meets the eye. That second part of, part of verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebecca gave birth to them. 60 years old. So the implication is that for 20 years, Isaac had not prayed about that situation. The probable reason being that he was so convinced that God would keep his word that he didn't need to do anything himself. And this may be the way that some folks here think. You have a very high view of the sovereignty of God. And that's right. And that's good. But you think, therefore, that you have nothing to do except stand back and admire God's power at work. You almost think it's presumptuous to imagine that you would have any, have any part to play. You, you see little point in praying. Uh, because you know that God won't change his mind and ev evangelism is sheer presumption. In other words, your view of the sovereignty of God makes you a passive onlooker rather than an active participant in the purposes of God. In today's theological terms, you would be described as a hyper-Calvinist, a hyper-Calvinist, someone who pushes the teaching of John Calvin beyond what was ever intended. Whereas the opposite position is described in our third point when we come to look at Jacob. And we've called this Jacob devises. Jacob devises. See, Isaac and Rebecca, they fell pregnant with these twins and they discovered what many parents learn through painful experience, that Though they had twins, and maybe you think when you have kids that they're going to be very similar, and you think, you know, the whole DNA thing, they're just going to have the same character, and it's going to be... Hey, one of the things you discover as a parent is that you can have kids, and they could be completely different. And that certainly was this situation here, not just in appearance, but also in personality. Esau, the one who came out first was covered in red hair and had an outgoing playboy type of personality. Whereas Jacob was smoother skinned, quieter, more domesticated. Esau was a hunter, which actually in itself was un an unnecessary occupation for a nomadic family. That We maybe have just glossed over the fact that he was a hunter. Look, they were a nomadic family. They had herds. If you wanted to eat an animal, you had an animal. You would take it and you would kill it. You didn't go out and hunt for it. You didn't have to do that. But that's what Esau did. Whereas Jacob seemed to be more aware of their responsibilities to, to manage that household community. And it would certainly seem that Jacob was aware of a prophecy that God had given his mother at birth. She was told that it would be the younger son, Jacob, through whom God's promised line would run, and not, as was culturally expected, the older boy Esau. And quite probably she'd shared that information with Jacob. But it wasn't a case of like father, like son. You see, Jacob wasn't passive like his father 
Isaac. He wasn't waiting around for God to drop an answer in his lap. No, he was an activist. He was a, he was a mover. He was a shaker. He wasn't going to hang around for things to happen. He was going to grab hold of the agenda and he was going to make things work for himself. So we read the story that when Esau comes in from the country, feeling very hungry and wanting food at that moment, Jacob sees his chance. He's cooked some red stew. And he offers it to his brother in exchange for his birthright. Now the birthright in those days was a transferable legal right that belonged to the eldest son. It carried with it the responsibility of leading the household, both materially and spiritually. And it gave the holder of the birthright a double portion of the estate. So in the case of two sons, the holder of the birthright would receive two-thirds of the estate. Now in Jacob's mind, if he is the one through whom the promises of God would be followed through, then he reasoned, well, he'd have to have the birthright for that to be possible. And rather than let God work it out in his own way, Jacob thought he needed to step in and intervene and help God. Even if the means by which he obtained the birthright were somewhat dubious. And I think that's precisely the way some people here regard the sovereignty of God. They acknowledge it in a general way, but in practice, they believe it's down to them to work things out. And they're so very busy and they're so very active and they don't spend much time meditating like Isaac, nor do they spend a lot of time in prayer and studying the Bible, but they're a lot happier when they're doing things, when they're in control of the agenda. And as for evangelism, they consider it their responsibility to convince an unbeliever and to get them to sign up for the Christian faith. Now, I can imagine someone complaining at this moment. Well, Andy, what's the answer? You've presented both sides of the argument and you've shown that both Isaac's response as a passive guy was wrong and Jacob's response as an overactive guy was inadequate. So what is it? Does God do it all, or do we do it all? Well, actually, we've already come across the answer when we looked at God's initial call to Abraham. And it was something that both Isaac and Jacob would have been aware of. Uh, just go back to the beginning of Genesis 12 and look at those crucial opening three verses, some of the most important verses in the whole of the Old Testament. It reads this in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now look at that. Who does what? Although the promises and blessings of Genesis 12 are unconditional promises of grace, God says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. The truth remains that if Abraham hadn't responded to God's commands, then he'd never have been blessed. If he hadn't got up and gone, then the Bible would be a much thinner book and we would be the most hopeless of people. You see, there is a glorious balance between what God does and how we respond. 
blessing and salvation are grace gifts of God entirely from him and unmerited by us. Get that. And yet, at the same time when God speaks, he also gives the faith that enables us to respond and obey. So yes, God is in complete control. He is working everything together for his glory and for the good of his people and there's nothing that can stand in his way. He is God. And at the very same time, God uses the obedient responses of his children so that they might grow in faith, so that they might have the joy of being used by God in his kingdom so that they might be shaped by those very events of obedience to be more like Jesus. You see, the trouble is some of us here are so passive. We're waiting for something to happen to us and in all honesty, we're ready to blame others for our lack of progress. And we hide behind the truth of God's sovereignty. But we're not grasping the opportunities that God is giving. We're not developing the gifts that God has entrusted to us. We're not ambitious to be involved in his kingdom plans. We'd just rather sit back and let it all happen. What, you're planting a church in Queensbury? Well, that's great. God bless them, but I'm happy here. Whereas for others here, the problem is not our passivity, but the problem with some of us here is our busyness. We rush around from one activity to another and spend so little time upon the cultivation of our spiritual life and the enjoyment of our relationship with Christ. If you're in that category, can I just ask you, when was the last time you sat down for an hour and gave thought to these things? An hour when you prayed, an hour when you meditated, an hour when you read the word of God or other works that would have been useful to you. Oh, of course, the excuse is always there's so much to be done and you're the only one who can do it. See, Jacob devises. But my fourth, the final category we're looking at, the fourth character that comes to us is Esau. And I've called this Esau despises. Esau despises. Now, whereas Isaac and Jacob sought to be obedient to the will of God in their different ways and maybe with an incorrect balance, Esau didn't. He wasn't bothered about being obedient to God. Now, he'd have been just as aware of the demands of Almighty God as his brother, as his father, just as aware of God's purposes for Abraham's descendants, but he chose to reject their teaching and their example. Instead, he followed his self-centered desires and passions. The writer to the Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 12, verse 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And the clear implication from that verse is that both these characteristics were found in Esau, sexually immoral and godless. And this all fits in so well with the Esau who put his physical appetites above his spiritual opportunities. Genesis 25, the chapter we're looking at, verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left so Esau despised his birthright. 
And there's probably no greater tragedy, and I mean this, there is probably no greater tragedy than that of people who, having been exposed to the truth of God's word, then choose to despise it and go their own way. No greater tragedy than those who are so enslaved to their own appetites and desires that they reject God's gracious gospel invitations. I think this should act as a warning to any here this evening who are playing with the things of the world and taking lightly the truth of God's word. The reality is that the things of this world have a deadening effect upon our consciences and we become hardened to God's call upon our life. And I especially want to close by addressing those here this evening who've come from Christian homes, who've been raised in church life, who've heard many gospel invitations but who've yet to give their hearts fully and completely to serving King Jesus. Be very careful of the glittering prizes that seem so attractive to you now, but may turn out to be the very tools of Satan to deaden your heart and to block your spiritual ears and to blind you to gospel truths. Be very careful careful about your rejection of the call of God upon your life for it will have eternal consequences there are some of you here you've been brought up in Charlotte Chapel the old building as well when you were kids and you remember it and your parents are, are Christians maybe your parents are here but you, you, you just you come along out of a sense of duty maybe a sense of obligation but you've never decided to give yourself unreservedly to King Jesus because you just think the things of uh, this world just seem so much brighter and interesting and your appetites go hankering after them and, and, and can I say some of you here you're students and you've come here and student life it is great, but it is dangerous because you can come away from home and you can come to the anonymity of another city. And there in that city, you, you are able to, and no one knows, the old peer group doesn't know, and your parents don't know, and the old church family doesn't know, and, and you can do your own thing and you can go your own way and you think you can indulge your appetites in ways that will please you and you can, as it were, have a foot in both camp and you can come along to Charlotte Chapel in the evening and you're, when you're ringing home, you said, oh yeah, it was that guy Andy, he preached too long again, but I was there and you think your parents are going to be happy. The danger is, of course, that what you're actually into is deadening your heart. And soon, in a year or two, you will not be here. In a year or two, you'll be pursuing your appetites. You'll be going after the glittering prizes of this world. And you will be rejecting the things of God. My friends, be so, so careful. It happened to Esau. Instead, may each one of us here look to our loving, sovereign God and with eagerness respond to his invitation to know him and to love him and to serve him and to be used by him. There is no greater blessing, there is no greater calling, there is no greater privilege than to be used in the very purposes of God. For you, for God to take your life and, and for you to say he's in charge of my life and the things you're going to go through and, and, 
hey, by the way, life is really tough. There's going to be times of tears and heartache and God, the gracious and the good and the loving God will take you through really tough times, really hard times so that you might lean on him harder and might be more like Jesus. But God's intention and God's purpose is to take you so that you can be used for his kingdom and for his glory. Whether that's going to be in the workplace, whether it's going to be in your home community, wherever it may be, God wants to take you up and he's given you grace gifts that he wants you to use for his kingdom. And there is nothing more thrilling than to be involved in that and to use your gifts so God is glorified amongst his people. Brothers and sisters, Let's be men and women of faith, of active faith, of trusting faith, of obedient faith. Let's be men and women who delight ourselves in our glorious, good, sovereign God. Let's pray.